This evening we're going to be considering an exhortation to holiness. An exhortation to holiness, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through to the end of the chapter, verse 32. Last week we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives grace to all true Christians, all genuine Christians, to live in unity. Also we saw that Jesus has given to his church various office bearers such as apostles and prophets and I made a big point last week of saying that there are no there are no prophets no apostles today we we've already seen in this letter that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets it is not for us to keep laying those foundations those foundations have been laid But having said that, the Lord Jesus Christ, he still gives to us evangelists, he gives pastors to the church, pastors whose ministry is to proclaim and teach the word of God to the end that Christians are no longer tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, false doctrine. This evening we shall consider an exhortation to holiness, which is not just desirable, it is essential if you're a Christian. For in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, it is written, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Let's just take a little bit of that verse. Without holiness, no man or woman, boy or girl, shall see the Lord. It's as clear as that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Holiness means separation to God. And you may well ask, separation to God? Separation from what? Then the answer to that is separation from the world. Separated from the world unto God. Although that doesn't mean being taken up out of this world, it does mean keeping yourself unspotted from the world and not being a friend of the world. That is in rebellion against its maker. A world that largely denies the very existence of God. A world that embraces and celebrates practices that are detestable to a holy God. In James' epistle, James goes as far as to say, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Similarly, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The sanctification of all the elect of God, people chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved and justified through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That sanctification has been accomplished when? When when was it first accomplished, that being made holy? If you're a Christian, you are sanctified, you're separated from the world unto God, and that separation first took place at the cross of Christ. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, it is written, We are sanctified, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. 
It follows that a person is holy from the very first moment that he first trusts in the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a repentant sinner. And Jesus then gives that person the right and the great privilege to become a child of, a, of God. And it stands to reason, really, that if you are a child of God, a true child of God, God who is holy, then you too are holy and sanctified unto God. From then on, sanctification is a continual and progressive work of God the Holy Spirit in the hearts and in the lives of all believers. For one thing, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church as a whole, I don't just mean this church here in Peel, I mean the one true church of which Jesus Christ is head. That church is the temple of the Holy Spirit and all true Christians, all true members of that one church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit that Christians bring forth, such as love and joy and peace, that is all fruit of the Holy Spirit. Before we look at today's passage, which is about holiness or being separated from the world unto God, I trust you can see that it follows on from what we've already considered in chapter 4 about walking worthy of your calling as a Christian. You can only walk worthy of your calling as a Christian if you are sanctified, separated unto God. Also, we've looked at unity of the Christian faith and, as I've already said, not being tossed about um, by the false doctrines of false teachers and deceivers who infiltrate the churches. Let's have a look again at verses 17 through to 19 in Ephesians chapter 4. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul's exhortation to these Ephesians, these Christians, was to not walk as unbelieving Gentiles walk and as they once walked before they became Christians in the vanity or the futility of their mind. That is the description of the people of this world walking in the vanity or the futility of their mind. The very fact that the walk that is spoken of in verse 17 proceeds from the mind, we see that there, the vanity of the mind, that, that it proceeds from the mind, tells us that it is as much uh, an internal attitude as, as, as it is an outward walk. For example, in Genesis chapter 5 verse 22, we're told that Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. That's Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he begat Methuselah. And that speaks of Enoch having a close communion with God internally and externally in thought, in word 
and indeed for a very long time. A close walk with God is one in which he leadeth you on the path of righteousness for his namesake. And that happens when the eye of faith is fixed upon your shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you feed and you feast upon his word, the scriptures, instead of focusing on yourself and focusing on the vain things of this world. Back in chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul was talking about the Ephesian Christians and about the, talking to the Ephesian Christians rather, about the eyes of their understanding being enlightened. If you're a Christian, you have seen the light. People talk about seeing the light and they talk nonsense. The only people who have actually seen the light are Christians. The only people who really are enlightened are Christians. That they may know what is their hope of their calling. What can be seen here in chapter 4 and verse 18 is, verse 18 is the very opposite to being enlightened. It is the darkened understanding of unregenerate Gentiles. Far from knowing the hope of their calling, the faithless have no hope at all. Jesus is the light of the world and that's how it is that we as Christians are enlightened. We've seen the light because we've seen Jesus who is the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. However, those who have not seen the light, who are not enlightened, they are in spiritual darkness and the spiritual darkness is in them. They have blindness of the heart and the thing is that even though a physically blind person knows that he is blind. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Someone's blind physically, they know that they're blind. However, people whose understanding is darkened People who are spiritually blind, they don't even know it. Unless God, who made the light shine in the darkness on the first day of creation, graciously makes the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shine in their hearts. In verse 19, we see that people who walk in the vanity of their minds abandon themselves to ungodliness and unrestrained lust. More details are given about that in Romans chapter 1, about those who walk in the vanity of their minds, people who are alienated from the life of God. In that chapter, Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly understood, clearly seen, clearly understood by the things that are made. I was having this conversation earlier on today with someone who has no interest in the Saviour and that person uh, was speaking from a philosophical point of view but actually I was able to agree with her on that occasion because how do we know that God is? And uh, the philosophers apparently would say the same thing. We know that God is by what he has made. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. 
All we have to do is look at around us, look at each other. The Bible says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. How wonderful that is. And it speaks of the handiwork of the Creator, Almighty God. And also, we have a conscience that either accuses us or excuses us. How is it that the conscience does those things, accusing and excusing? Well, the answer is given by Paul again. Because we have, all of us, have the works of God's law written in our hearts. Even so, people, the unregenerate people who, whose hearts are darkened, hardened, they worship the creature instead of the creator. They become vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts are darkened. This is a description of people generally. You should be able to relate to that. If you're not a Christian in here, I'm speaking to you as you are now. And if you are a Christian, you know full well that's exactly how you once were. Walking after or the, the imagination of your foolish heart, foolish darkened heart. And God gives them over to their vile affections, such people. And amongst other things, both their men and their women engage in homosexuality. Also in Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through to 32, Paul says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and this is one, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them, that do them. Again, description of this world, is it not? That list of evilness, that list of depravity, which is far removed from walking with God, is to varying degrees embraced, practiced and celebrated by those who walk in the vanity of their mind, including our leaders, world leaders, who take counsel and they plot against the Lord and his Christ. And they enact laws which clearly contravene, violate God's holy laws. And it's all quite deliberate. And it's a way of waving their puny fists towards heaven and saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. It's rebellion against Almighty God. But then, coming back to Ephesians chapter 4, Look at verse 20 and 21. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, what's being said in verse verses 20 and 21 to the Ephesian believers and all who profess faith in Jesus, so it's not just to those Ephesians, obviously it's for everyone who, who who professes faith in Christ. 
And what he's saying is, you did not learn Christ so as to continue to live as the Gentiles are doing. And what that means is if you have really learned Christ, in other words, you really know him and not just know about him, it is inconceivable that you will continue to walk after the flesh and not after the spirit. And if you really have heard Jesus and not just heard about him, you will follow him as he leads you on the path of righteousness. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There you have it. If you belong to Jesus, you don't just hear him and then ignore him. You hear him, you follow him, having been taught and enlightened by him through the truth that is in him. For Jesus is the truth. To really know Jesus, who is the truth, is to have freedom from sin. Freedom from things like lasciviousness or unbridled lust, to be free from its consequences, which is condemnation. Being truly free in a way that the world knows nothing about is, as I've already said, is being bound to Jesus, being yoked to him. You've seen oxen yoked to each other, where one goes, the other goes. I, can, I could say there's nothing better than to be yoked to the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful that is. Because you, you follow him and you've got no choice in a way. You belong to him. Where he goes, he takes you with him. Because you belong to him. Because he bought you at a price. The price was his own precious blood. And he's demonstrated that love for you when he laid down his life for you. His sheep at the cross. And he's leading you on paths of righteousness for his name's sake, if indeed you do belong to him. There were religious Jews who boasted to Jesus that Abraham was their father and furthermore they were boasting that God is their father. However, they did not know Jesus as their saviour and their Lord. Although they were speaking to him, arguing with him, they didn't really know him. And Jesus plainly said to them, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Wow. They didn't like hearing that one. The lesson there is that you need to be very careful not to let your deceitful heart nor the false and deceitful teachers in the churches tell you that you have freedom from sin through faith in Jesus and that you are a child of God when in reality you have never even repented of your sins and you never have trusted in Jesus and you don't even know him. How tragic that would be. I say that, you think I'm overdoing it here, but I can think of Matthew chapter 7. Who are the ones who Jesus will say to on that day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Jesus will say that to people who say to him, Lord, Lord, not just Lord once, but twice. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done this in your name and that in your name? And Jesus will plainly say to them, I never knew you. So we need to be people who have repented. We do repent. It's not just a one-off thing. 
I'm not saying that you go from day to day beating yourself over the back, self-flagellation and all the rest of it, not at all. But you need to be people, or you are someone, shall I say, if you are a Christian, you are someone who acknowledges your sin before God. David, take David, the man of God, a man after God's own heart. In, in, in New Testament language, he's a Christian, or he was a Christian, but you could read about him in the Psalms. When he kept silent, his bones waxed old through his roaring all day long. Something I can relate to, and maybe you can as well. When, you, when you're fast-bound in sin, as a Christian, you ache, your whole body aches. That sin, it impacts on you in every possible way. But then, David said, then I confessed my sin, and the Lord forgave the iniquity of my sin. And how wonderful that is, that we have a forgiving God, a loving Heavenly Father. But that's the Christian. That is the Christian. If you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't care about these things. Your body wouldn't ache, you wouldn't lose any sleep over uh, the, the horrible things on the lists that we can, that I read out to you from Romans chapter 1, or indeed the list of horrible sins that we have here in Ephesians chapter 4. You wouldn't bat an eyelid. But as a Christian, things ought to be very different. And you look to the Lord each and every day for his grace, his enabling for you to mortify the deeds of the flesh flesh and to, to live a life that glorifies the God of your salvation. That's a big difference between a Christian and an unregenerate person who is in darkness and the darkness is in his heart. Looking at verse 22 to 20, I won't read the, the whole thing again. Verses 22 to 32. In these verses, there's an exhortation to put off the old man with all that is associated with it and to put on the new man. You can see that there from verse 22 onwards. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man. Remember, this is an exhortation. But actually, what Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to do, and you as a Christian, and me as a Christian, what he's exhorting us to do has already been done by the grace of God. And basically, we're to start living it out. Because, if you you look elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul actually says that the old man is crucified. Now, as far as I understand, when some... When, uh, when someone is crucified or something is crucified, it's dead. It dies. The Lord Jesus Christ, he was taken by wicked men. He was nailed to a cross. He was crucified. And Christ died for our sins on that cross. The old man refers to everything that you once were when Adam was your head. It includes being under sin, under condemnation, not having any righteousness of God. All you had was your own self-righteousness, which is worth nothing in God's sight. Not worth a cent. And being an enemy of God, having the wrath of God abiding on you, 
That's how things were with the old man. If you have been quickened, made alive and saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, all of those things are in the past. As Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, our old man is crucified. In other words, it's dead and gone. As for the new man, well, the glorious truth is that you, dear Christian, have been raised up to newness of life in Jesus. And he is your head. And, and with the new man comes a new mode of life. Things ought to be different for you as a Christian. Or, for example, again, Paul said in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that is, and to that we say, praise God for that, because there's nothing you can do yourself. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is all the grace of God, the one who saved you by his grace. This is where the rubber hits the road and we, and we see if there is any discernible difference in the life that you now live in the flesh as a professing Christian. In other words, this is where, where we see if your Christian profession goes beyond the theory and it goes beyond a Christian testimony, even if it's the most amazing Christian testimony ever. Because there ought to be differences for the better in your Christian walk. For example, take the Christians at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, Paul said to them, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? At that point you're thinking, well, what hope is there for me? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but if you're a Christian, you have a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. He is your righteousness. I'll go on. Paul said, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye were washed. Ye were sanctified, but ye were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Again, let's remember that Paul was writing to professing Christians at Corinth. He plainly tells them not to be deceived, not to kid themselves. And then he runs off a list of sinful practices that, in, that, that exclude people from inheriting the kingdom of God. Interestingly, much of what is on that list that I've just read is considered acceptable in our day and age, in our society and in the world at large. That as may be, they are not acceptable to a holy and sin-hating God who says, do not be saved. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But consider what Paul says at the end of that, and I'll read it to you again in case you missed it. And such were some of you, but ye were washed, ye were sanctified, but ye were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's an acknowledgement in those words that even though the Corinthian Christians would no doubt be able to tick at least a few of those boxes of terrible things there, terrible sins, they had nevertheless, by the grace of God, who saved them and sanctified them, made them holy, they had parted company with those evils. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. By the grace of God. Coming back to Ephesians chapter 4, the old man, I'll just, I'll just give the Bible verses here, the references rather, the old man under Adam, the old unregenerate man is seen in lying, that's in verse 25, anger in verse 26, stealing verse 28, corrupt words, in other words foul language in verse 29. No doubt there is much, much more such as what we've already looked at in this list and various other lists in the Bible. You put the whole lot together and even then it's not going to be an exhaustive list. You get the idea though, there are certain things that you part company with if you have been enlightened and you have learned Jesus and you know Jesus and indeed Jesus dwells by faith in your heart. Paul says in verse 31 that you are to put those things away. They all belong to the crucified old man. They ought to be dead and buried. There is no place for such conduct in the body of Christ. Something of the new man can be seen in verse 32, towards right near the end there. Look at verse 32. The new man, the last verse, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sakes, have forgiven you. They are the characteristics of someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and is progressively and continuously sanctifying through the Word of God, the Scriptures. Not only does that bring us to the end of chapter 4, but actually it takes us right back to the beginning of chapter 4. I realised that when I finished, it took me straight back to the beginnings. I'm not going to go round in circles with this, but let's, as we finish here, let's just finish looking again at the first three verses of chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is all the new man, isn't it? The person who has been enlightened, the one who really knows Jesus. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and, uh, and so it goes on. Dear Christian, may that be your prayer, may that be your practice, that you grieve not the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Amen.